This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for October 28th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we talk with journalists and scientists about news and research from Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, space-based solar power gets closer to launch. Staff writer Daniel Clary is here to talk about how reusable rockets can bring the possibility of giant solar array satellites that beam down gigawatts of uninterrupted power. After that, we hear about organic small molecule synthesis. It turns out making proteins in DNA, which are big organic molecules, can be pretty easy these days. But making new stuff that's small is actually tough. And this is partially because it's so difficult to optimize reaction conditions. Nicholas Angelo talks about an approach that uses robots and machine learning to optimize reaction conditions. Finally, we have the last in our series of books on food and agriculture. This month, host Angela Saini talks with journalist Dan Saladino about his book, Eating to Extinction, the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. The idea of beaming solar power down from space where there's no clouds, there's no day or night cycles exactly, this has been seriously considered, but never seriously pursued for around 50 years, maybe longer. But now advances in technology and the increasing external costs of other types of energy are bringing space-based solar power closer to reality. Daniel Clary is a staff writer for science, and he's here with some of the details. Hi, Dan. Hi. Okay, so this is not a new idea. Harnessing the sun's rays up in space and sending them back to Earth. But what have been some of the bigger barriers to making this happen? It's really been cost because you would have to build a very large satellite because you've just got to collect a lot of the sun's rays. So it would need to be huge. And the cost of getting that into space has always been astronomical. And that has put people off. You know, you couldn't justify the costs. Yeah, you couldn't get square kilometers of solar panels into space on a rocket. It's so expensive. Exactly. You know, and you would have to have multiple, multiple launches, you know, maybe hundreds of launches, and you would need astronauts in space to assemble it. And, you know, NASA looked into that in the 1970s when there was a fuel crisis going on. And, you know, it was just too much money. It just wasn't going to work with the technology they had at the time. 
Hundreds of launches actually sounds pretty familiar these days. We're seeing a lot of rockets go into space, come back. Is that pushing people to consider this more seriously, these uh, commercial carriers? Yeah, absolutely. New entrants into the launch market like uh, SpaceX have just changed things completely because they have introduced reusable rockets and that has reduced costs phenomenally. And so people are starting to look at this idea again and think if you can bring costs down a bit more, then it starts to make economic sense. Let's go through the components, like where this would be, what's doing what, and then we'll kind of get into the different barriers and advances that we've seen. So how would this work today or in the next decade if it actually happens? What's up in space? What's down on Earth? What's moving around? What you would need is a very, very large array of solar panels, just like the solar panels that people have on their roof or uh, in a solar farm. So these are photovoltaic that uh, convert sunlight directly into electricity. They will be able to collect more energy up in space because they don't have the atmosphere, which filters out a lot of the sun's light. So they would be able to collect much broader range of wavelengths. So that would make them more efficient than ones on the ground. You would want to put it probably in geosynchronous orbit. So that's very far out where the satellite orbits the Earth at the same speed that the Earth spins. So it's always above the same point on the ground. And very far out is, what, 30,000 kilometers? Yeah, something like 36,000 kilometers. Okay, so it's not going to be in our little like sphere of satellites and debris that we already are contending with. No, that's it. In low Earth orbit, there's a lot more danger of being hit by debris or another satellite, especially if it's something that's kilometers wide. That would be quite a danger for it. But up at that high altitude, things move much more slowly. There isn't so much many things flying around. So it would be much safer for it and uh, would ensure it had a long lifetime. So if it was out there, we have a big, big array of solar panels collecting the sun. What happens to the electricity that the solar panels are able to create? What, what are the next steps for that? What they would most likely do would be to convert the electricity into microwaves. So this is a, a well-known technology where you can send a beam of microwaves in a narrow beam at a target and have a sort of series of antennas which would pick it up and convert it directly into electricity again. It's well understood. They would have to test things like, was it going to harm any birds or people that happened to pass through the beam? But the current thinking is, if you have your beam wide enough, a kilometer or more wide, then anything passing through it is only getting a tiny amount of energy. It would feel like the sun on a hot day rather than you know, being fried. A microwave oven. <laughs> yes, that's right. But if it's a kilometer wide beam, that means your collector also has to be really large. Yeah, that's true. That would take a lot of real estate, but it wouldn't be necessarily, you could do nothing else with that land. You know, you could farm underneath these antennas, you could put them offshore. There are offshore wind farms, you could mix the antennas amongst the wind turbines offshore. Another unique aspect of this is that the beam 
can be sent anywhere within line of sight. So although you have an antenna at one position on the ground near your city, it doesn't always have to be directed at that point. You could send it to other places. You know, say it was a very sunny day and ground-based solar power was producing enough energy, you could send the beam somewhere else where it's needed. You know, there could be energy-intensive industries that have their own receiver array on the ground, and whenever there's some spare electricity in space, it could go to them, or it could be beamed to a disaster area where their own power grid has been knocked out in some way. Okay, so we have kind of the the big components here. We have the array in space, we have the beam coming down, we have the collector on Earth, and all along this chain, you can lose energy. You can have different types of efficiency. So where are we on that? You know, are we is space-based collection actually better than Earth-based collection when it comes to photovoltaics? It's better in that, you know, you haven't got the atmosphere removing some of your energy. And also, it's 24-7. The sun never goes down. There's never any clouds. So this is a source of energy that is going to work around the clock. That makes it incredibly valuable in a society where we may be more dependent on renewable sources, because renewable sources on the ground don't always work. The wind doesn't always blow. There are cloudy days and nighttime. So something that can provide a steady background of power is extremely valuable. And at the moment, you know, if we're trying to get rid of carbon-based sources, we're looking at nuclear for doing that. And that has its own problems. So if this could replace nuclear power stations, I think people would be uh, welcoming. So uh, one of these arrays, one of the larger ones, would make as much power as a nuclear plant? Yes, that's the designs people are looking at. If you had one a few kilometers across, it could potentially deliver two gigawatts onto the grid, which is the same as a typical nuclear power station. And we need to test the efficiencies all along the chain, right? How it's going at the solar panel level, how it's going at the microwave level, how it's going at the collector level, and then pass that. Exactly. All of the technologies needed exist now. There's no revolutions in science that are needed to make this work. But as you say, efficiency is all important because if things are inefficient, you've got to make a bigger satellite. And that, again, makes it more expensive. So all of these technologies, they have to do some work to increase efficiencies so that you get something that can produce electricity in a way that isn't fabulously expensive at the end. So there's work to do, but I think given enough funding, these things are solvable. And at the moment, this sort of technology, I've been using these technologies for solar power in space, is not getting hardly any funding. People just aren't taking it seriously as a future energy technology. And so people are trying to change that now. I was thinking about how being so far out, it would be difficult to fix it or assemble it. Like we're not going to send it all up in one piece. Is that another level of technology that needs to be considered for this is how to keep it in good shape, how to build it so far away? Absolutely. People are already designing robots for the purposes of repairing satellites and also refueling satellites. Those sort of robots could equally piece together a large array. So the idea is, I think, that launches would go up into lower orbit. It would be assembled there using these robots. And once it was in its full shape, or maybe a few large components, then these could be 
carefully pushed outwards to a position much further out where they're always above the same spot. And then once it's in position, it can also be repaired. Since it's made from many, 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 many copies of cheaply made technology, then if something goes wrong with the component, you would have a robot that would crawl over to that component, pull it out, and put in a replacement. So it'd be repairable, which would, A, keep its efficiency high, but also extend its lifetime. So in theory, you could just keep replacing parts, and it would be continually renewed for uh, as long as we need the energy. That's great. We have the pieces in place. We have ideas about how it would work. Some of it needs to be further developed. What kind of testing needs to be done? We talked a little bit about, you know, not cooking birds or people. Is that something that needs to be more thoroughly tested? And and how would they do that? It absolutely needs to be checked to ensure that it's not going to do any damage. You know, the uh, safety aspect is all important. And at the moment, people have done experiments on the ground where they send a beam of microwaves from a transmitter to a receiver, you know, about a kilometer or two to show that it's possible. But that needs to be done on a larger scale. And it also needs to be done from space so that we show that it's going to work and what sort of efficiency we can get. So we need to send some uh, transmitters up into space and experiment with beaming down to Earth. It sounds like that's something that is going to happen in the next few years. Who is looking into doing that? There are a few projects. The U.S. Air Force and Navy Research Labs are both looking at this. I believe the Air Force is going to try a beaming experiment next year. Other people, the European Space Agency is starting to do ground experiments. And uh, hopefully, if they get the funding, that'll move into space, you know, in the coming decade. And also countries such as China and Japan and South Korea, they've all got programs of experimenting with beaming energy. But again, they haven't moved into space yet. Let's talk far out in the future. Even just launching this costs a lot of energy, not just money, but you know, you're using a bunch of rocket fuel, it's many, many launches. Is that going to pay off with these solar arrays once they get in place? Yes, people have done calculations of what that impact would be because rocket fuel is a, uh, a hydrocarbon. And they reckon that if, say, you were replacing a coal-fired power station by putting one of these in orbit, it would pay off in terms of carbon in a few years, all these launches. So that isn't foreseen as a problem. And also, once you have it in space and it's generating energy, you can use some of that energy to generate synthetic rocket fuel. So launches for later satellites could be entirely carbon-free. Could we see this kind of array from Earth? That's a good question. I don't know. It would be very large, but it would be very, very far away. So I'm not sure whether you would be able to see it. You might, I guess, if the sun glinted off it in absolutely in your direction, then uh, yeah, you might see a flash of light. Thanks so much, Dan. Before I let you go, I want to ask you what we call the while I have you question. This is just me taking advantage of speaking to so many scientists and people who write about science like yourself and asking them their take on something. So this is a while I have you question. You know, you are so, so engaged with space and the people who study space, the people who do this kind of engineering that we've talked about. Do you find sci-fi interesting? Does it hold your attention? Do you read stuff? 
Yeah, absolutely. I like hard sci-fi, you know, the sort of things that are plausible, you know, that don't break any laws of physics, but sort of project what we have now into the future is to show that how technology might change society in the future, but also as a reflection on the society we have now and how it might evolve going forward. Do you have any books that you feel do a really good job? Books by Kim Stanley Robinson are very good. You know, he did a series about uh, colonizing Mars and has done another one about the moon and another one recently about how climate change is going to change society and economics and uh, and everything, basically. So, yeah, you know, I like his books. He does a lot of thorough research. That's a really good recommendation. Thank you so much, Dan. Okay. Daniel Clary is a staff writer for science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned. Up next, we have my interview with researcher Nicholas Angelo about optimizing reaction conditions for small molecules using machine learning and robotic synthesis. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, Upload your resume or CV to the searchable database or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. When chemists discover a new reaction, they're usually using just a small subset of starting materials and a set of reaction conditions for those materials. And they keep using those working conditions, those reaction conditions, as they vary the reactions and get different outputs. Optimization is very difficult because the options for reaction conditions are basically unending. This week in science, Nicholas Angelo and colleagues write about using an approach that combines machine learning and robotic synthesis to optimize reaction conditions and improve efficiency for the synthesis of organic small molecules. Hi, Nick. Hi, Sarah. So I put the problem that you're addressing here in your paper in my in my words, but I would like to hear from you, what problem were you trying to solve? In this work, we're trying to find more general reaction conditions for a specific reaction, which is used very widely in the chemical industry and, and it's relatively relevant. The reason why we want to find general ones is because making small molecules is very important, but very challenging. And it usually requires a lot of of optimization. So even if you know the chemical reactions you want to use to make a molecule, you usually have to optimize each of those steps. So we wanted to see whether we could find reaction conditions. So the set of chemicals we use to make that reaction occur that were just better overall so that we could access new molecules without having to optimize every step. We're talking about small organic molecules. Has some of this work been done for larger things like DNA, RNA, some kinds of proteins? Yeah, so the I think that's where we get most of our inspiration from because it's, you know, peptides and proteins, this automated synthesizers for those types of molecules have had about 50 years or 
or so of, of optimization so far. And so making those molecules, you could put a lot of different building blocks together, like up to a hundred different of those amino acids is usually what's possible. There, the reason why you can put that many together is because the, the general reaction conditions work so well that most of the time you get 99% yield or basically all of the stuff you put in goes to the stuff that you want to be made. So if we could get somewhere similar with small molecules, I think that would be pretty transformative. Small molecules are useful for pharmaceuticals, but also for laboratory experiments and doing research as well, right? So small molecules do basically everything. So the most recognizable small molecules are maybe like water or, or ethanol, but there are all kinds of like biomarkers, metabolites, or like you said, pharmaceuticals or important pieces of material chemistry as well. Everything you could taste or smell is usually attributed to a small molecule, giving it that unique taste or smell. Yeah. So our body is constantly making them and reacting to them and using them for things. But it's also incredibly broad, right? It's like all kinds of small things. And what you're trying to do here is set up some general conditions for certain kinds of reactions and figuring out the best way to do that. You're right. It's it's a really broad category because a small molecule is technically defined as anything under a thousand mass units. There's a, a lot of stuff in that space, even though most of the time it's just things with carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, that kind of stuff. The reaction we focused on in this paper is, is the, one of the best ways known to make carbon-carbon bonds, which are really critical for most small molecules. Um, and it's a reaction which won the Nobel Prize within the past few decades, the Suzuki-Miura coupling. And it's SMC, which is also my initials. Very helpful ah, for awesome. me to remember. <laughs> okay, so for the SMC reaction, that's that's one that you kind of use as your exemplar throughout the paper. But the hope here eventually is to say, well, if you use this combination of data science, machine learning, and robotics, you can optimize all kinds of reactions. Yeah, and we think that's probably the case just because we didn't need to feed it with a thousand literature examples or anything like that. We actually found that we had to look forward and, and make our own examples kind of almost starting from, from zero. Yeah, that was really interesting. So doing a literature search and saying, well, you know, what have people done in the past to get better yields from this reaction? You didn't find that that was very fruitful. What's really interesting about that is because chemists have this approach where every molecule could be optimized almost infinitely, like, like you were saying, you don't get a lot of comparative examples. In the literature, more than 90% of the time, each unique molecule product only shows up one time and usually only with one condition. Yeah. And so you want to go about it systematically, but you also kind of have a ton of things to to choose from. So you can't do all infinite sets of like <laughs> of this molecule and this molecule and this temperature and that temperature and all that kind of stuff. So how did you kind of sort out what to start with, what to start collecting data on? We wanted to capture this, this space of heteroaerial cross-coupling. So that's when each of the building blocks has, has a nitrogen or an oxygen incorporated into a kind of flat conjugated aromatic ring. That specific area chemical space was really important, but very challenging for both pharmaceuticals and materials. And we had, we had a lot of interesting molecules we wanted to make, but that we couldn't make just because the chemistry didn't work. So what we did is we took everything we could buy in that whole class, tried to find every molecule piece we could buy and put together. Sounds uh, expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been very expensive, but we did a data science driven kind of clustering approach to try to pick representative pieces of those molecules that we could put together. And the fun part about that is we still ended up with a total set of molecules that, that was still way too large for us to actually 
synthesize all of those. So then we had a, a next level strategy in the machine learning, have it pick representative products that were as different from each other as possible so that we're hopefully optimizing across the whole space, even though we can't make the whole space. Interesting. Yeah, let's talk more about the machine learning. This helped you down-select the universe of inputs. Did it also help you figure out the conditions that might work best for all these different combinations? Yeah, so the machine learning kind of had two purposes here. So one of it was selecting which pairs of the products we had chosen to try the reactions on. That's like the active learning component, which is picking new data points to try to maximize its learning per round of experiments. And then the other component is picking which of the sets of reaction conditions we could try to try in each time. And so those kind of two separate things that it did at the same time, which is hasn't necessarily been done before, but actually worked out relatively well. So let's bring the robot in. Mm-hmm. It's probably, I don't know how much of a robot this is. I'm going to ask you to describe it. So the machine learning then directed these reactions using a robot. And then that information was fed back into the, to the algorithm so that it could continue to learn and, and gather new information to optimize. Yeah. So the robot was really our tool of reproducibility. What it did is ensure that every reaction had the same amount of inert atmosphere, same amount of heating and stirring. Every reaction was treated the same. And we were, I guess, pleased to see that the reproducibility we got by doing the automated approach was was pretty tight. So it was almost plus or minus 2% yield, which is a little better than when humans do it, just because we have a little bit less reproducibility. Variability. Yeah, we have a little more variability, I would say. Yeah, for sure. So I, I guess I was imagining that you'd be like, okay, algorithm, you talk to this arm and this arm is going to make things and then you're going to measure the outputs and then you're going to make new choices for the arm. It, it, you just turn off the lights and walk away. That's not what happened? Oh, not exactly. No. So it was it, it was a little bit more human in the loop. There's a lot of work that's been done recently to make autonomous synthesis and autonomous optimization possible. But here we had humans interacting with the robots and interacting with the data. There are ways to do it where you have computers send it to the robot, the robot executes it, and then it gets automatically analyzed. But no one's really gotten a great solution to putting all that together. I can imagine that doesn't make the most sense when you're trying to figure things out. Like once you've nailed something down, you can kind of leave those two non-humans to interact with each other. But <laughs> I think so, yeah. I think that definitely now that we've shown this, if I wanted to design a little robot to sit in the corner of my lab and just optimize a new reaction over and over again, at least now I know it'll work. So I would be very comfortable doing that. <laughs> that was very cool. All right. So let's talk about how this worked out with all these components harnessed together for your SMC reaction, your test case. How did the optimization work out? After we had optimized, we had finished optimizing on 11 unique molecules that were picked to be as different as possible. We then went and had the data science choose another 20 molecules, which are as different from those initial training molecules as possible. And what we found there, which was surprising to us, is that the the best conditions in the training set were also the best conditions, and they're in the same order across this whole test set. And that corresponded to at least a, a doubling or slightly more than a doubling of the average yield across all 20 of those. And if you want to think about it like practically, it's sometimes very challenging for synthetic chemists to isolate less than 10% yield of a molecule. The amount of byproducts you're getting are much larger than the amount of the product you're getting. And so for the new conditions we had, so basically every molecule that we could make at all was greater than 10% yield. So we're trying to 
increase the makeability of these kinds of interesting small molecules. And so when you say you have these conditions that are one, two, and three, does one work the best for every single one of those 20 new molecules? No, that's the that's the cool thing and a, and a little bit of the difference between our what we were looking at here versus like traditional optimization. So it's not necessarily the case that for any one of those specific examples, the condition is the best. Just because of statistics and math, most of the time it is the best. But there's definitely examples where some of the quote unquote worst conditions generally work better for specific ones. So there's always room for if you have a one molecule you want to make and you want to make it with a even higher yield, you could always optimize. But I think like you said earlier, you could you could always optimize a, a chemical reaction. But what we found here, which is cool, is that on average, if you're going to pick any molecule and you don't know anything about it, you haven't run any experiments, these conditions will work at least twice better than what I would say was the state of the art prior. A lot of times when people use machine learning it's not easy to tell what the AI pays attention to. Like, it's not always very transparent. So what were you able to find out about how this machine learning process, what it was paying attention to, what kinds of things it was learning? What we're able to see is by looking at the kind of reaction conditions and the substrates that it chose to test those conditions on per each of their rounds of optimization, we could kind of watch the machine learning learn in a way. At the beginning, you see it doesn't have a great way of ranking everything. And then by the next round, it had already kind of classified things into high yielding or, or medium or low yielding. And then after that, you can kind of see it resolving out, like here are what the correct order of the top catalyst or condition to the bottom condition are. And then in doing so, after it had a good idea of that order by the third round, it pretty much then just explored all of the best ones by the fourth and fifth round. And so everything with a predicted yield of more than 50%, which is like pretty good bar, was explored at, at the end. So you really saw a stepwise improvement as, as time went by. How do you see this applying to other important reactions that people are interested in exploring more about? Are there any that you're keen to look into more? I don't know if we'll change the paradigm exactly, but I would like to at least be a part of that process. So Right now, there's a, a lot of personal, maybe bias is not the word, right word, but there's, there's a lot of not data science driven selection of what you test when you present a new reaction. And there's nothing against those works because they're fantastic works of showing for the first time new chemistry can work. But it's sometimes you end up with reactions which work really well for a really small chemical space. And then when you want to try this on something else and you find it doesn't work, it's, it's disappointing. <laughs> so... One of the impacts of this work, besides being like a general play-by-play, -play, which I, th I think it could apply to a few different reactions, I think at least one aspect of this would be if it at least guided, um, even if people are doing manual reactions and, and the classic discovery and reaction optimization stuff, I would at least hope it would guide the selection of substrates to be representative of larger spaces. I think the data science component is, is a very cool thing, even if people don't utilize reaction automation or utilize machine learning. Thank you so much, Nick. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Nicholas Angelo is a graduate research assistant at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. You can find a link to the study we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Don't miss the last in our series on books exploring the science of food and agriculture. This month, host Angela Saney talks with journalist Dan Saladino about foods that are going extinct. Hello.
Hello, I'm Angela Saini, science journalist, author, and the host of this series of podcasts talking to authors of books on food and agriculture. We've reached the very last episode, and as we look back on a devastating year in which the world has had to confront food shortages and soaring prices, today we're going to explore one aspect of how our food supply might be made more robust and sustainable for the future. With me, I have Dan Saladino, a journalist known for his decades of work at the BBC covering food stories. His global travels helped him conceive his first book, Eating to Extinction, which came out earlier this year. Saladino questions what we've gained as a species by increasing food production through intensive agricultural techniques and technologies, but in the process, drastically reducing the biological diversity of crops that we eat. Most of us consume just a few types of wheat, rice, soybean, banana, I could go on, when in fact there are enormous varieties of each, some with particular nutritional benefits, different flavours or cooking properties. Worst of all, some of these are at risk of disappearing completely, which means we may never get to try them. Dan, thank you for joining me. Could you begin by painting a picture of the situation that we're in now? How desperate is the problem of foods going extinct and how did we get here? I think it's a hidden part of the challenges we face in the the global food system, but going up the agenda. And I think the big picture is that for thousands of years, the way we produced food went relatively unchanged. And towards the end of the 19th century and into the 20th, we started to accumulate these new technologies, this new science, including the science of crop breeding itself, animal breeding as well. By the midpoint of the 20th century, we ended up with this ability to transform on a global scale that goes under the term Green Revolution, which was a culmination of of many of these technologies of crop breeding, the production of synthetic fertilizers, irrigation systems. And so there was this turning point, really, where we had this ability to produce more and more calories. But I think the, the key part of the problem is that, that that became our focus. And so complex is agriculture and biodiversity and agrobiodiversity as well, that we miss so much of the bigger picture by focusing purely on yield and the production of calories. And I think in the 21st century, that's really catching up with us. One example of that is that producing all of these calories with these new technologies, this new science was uniformity, greater genetic homogeneity across food production systems, focusing on these highly productive new types of crops and animals. What that brought with it is this opportunity for plant diseases, to spread more rapidly. I guess to sum that up, in the 20th century, we really crack some big problems about productivity in the food system, but they have come with some consequences that we couldn't really foresee, which is why in the book I'm arguing that we need to return to greater genetic diversity. And some of the clues in terms of where that genetic diversity is lies in some of the endangered foods perhaps even some of the traditions that we neglected and dismissed as being old-fashioned or backward or primitive. 
Right. And what risks do we face then when we have these enormous monocultures? What risks do we face in terms of, for example, food supply, which is a big issue at the moment? Mm. I think one of the more familiar stories in this area is the Cavendish banana. In the 19th century and into the midpoint of the 20th century, there was the Gros Michel, which was the globally traded banana. In a sense, it was the breakthrough banana that allowed these fruits to be grown in a tropical part of the world and be transported across the world and then sold in supermarkets as one of the cheapest things in store. The banana itself co-evolved with many different fungal diseases, including one that goes under the umbrella term Panama disease. And so because the banana itself is clonally propagated, it's not grown from seed, huge amounts of genetic uniformity can be found if you plant them in a monoculture. And so what we find is that the Gros Michel was overwhelmed as the fungal disease evolved to the point where it could attack these vast monocultures in different parts of the world, infect the soil and then the plant, and in effect, lead it to rot from within and devastate the livelihoods of farmers. And so the banana industry had one solution at the time, which was to replace one monoculture with another, to move on from the Gros Michel and find another type of banana which had some disease resistance. And so this was the Cavendish. And this was the Cavendish. And the Cavendish has been the globally traded banana for many decades. And yet the fungal disease kept evolving. And now we have a variant. The current variant that's causing a problem is TR4. And again, we're back into this cycle of plantations being devastated by this disease. Now, that's the banana. And that's a relatively well-known story. But I could spend the next hour describing very specific diseases that are now impacting on farmers with different crops. Wheat, for example, fusarium head blight costs farmers billions of dollars a year, partly because the fungus lies in the soil to increase productivity of wheat. We reduced the stalk so the plant could put more energy in just producing grain. But that led to the grain being closer to the soil. And so one of the unintended consequences is that this fusarium head blight is now spreading around the world. There is such a story of scientific hubris underlying what you've written in your book. In many ways, farmers and cooks, everyday people, were humanity's first scientists, you know, slowly developing every one of the foods that we eat today, but over many, many hundreds of years. Absolutely. And your book really highlights just what we lose when we neglect that accumulated wisdom in favor of this very rapid scientific approach that kind of only in hindsight realizes uh, the mistakes that might have been made. And for me, the story in your book that really encapsulated that was maize in Oaxaca, Mexico. Could you explain that one? Fascinating story. In the, in the late 1970s, botanists were documenting visits to a high-altitude village in, in Oaxaca. And there, they had come across maize growing in an environment, in terms of altitude and soil, where they didn't expect it. That was surprise number one. Surprise number two was, I guess, the, they were struck by the appearance of the maize that they did find, which was really tall, 16 feet tall, and it had these very strange aerial roots. So obviously it had a root system below ground, but it also had these roots coming out from the stalk. And they were dripping this bizarre looking mucus 
this was documented, but they didn't quite understand what this plant really was and what this mucus contained. And it was only in the last three or four years that scientists at UC Davis had the right analytical tools to take a close look at this mucus and realize that it was hosting thousands of different types of microbes that were all interacting with the plant and with each other. These microbes in the mucus were being fed sugars from the plant, and in turn, they were fixing nitrogen from the air and fertilizing the plant. Now, this cycle of fertility is more often found in legumes, in beans and pulses, because of the microbial populations that exist around the roots. To have it in these aerial roots in a grain, that was really unheard of. And it's significant because all of the other villages around this one village had moved on from these traditional types of maize and replaced them with new generation post-green revolution types of maize. And the government had provided synthetic fertilizers for them to, to grow the maize. And the scientists at UC Davis were saying, we got there just in time. So the farmers had the wisdom, and obviously it was part of a farming system and a way of life for them to keep this maize propagated and continually planted over thousands of years, possibly. But it could have disappeared as a resource for them and potentially for other parts of Oaxaca and possibly even other parts of Mexico and the world. So... You know, it's a story of tradition, but also a fascinating plant to think about our future, our food future. Yeah, it's incredible, really. Each chapter in your book is a vignette of a different crop, um, none of which I'd ever heard of before. <laughs> One that stood out for me was the memang narung, this wild citrus fruit that grows in the state of Magalia in northeast India. And this is a remarkably biodiverse part of the world anyway. It really is. What's special about this fruit? it has a huge amount of bitterness and sourness. This is interesting because that represents, or that is, the plant's defense mechanism. And this also has been recognized as an important source of medicine from the people, but also scientists understand that to be anthocyanins, so hugely beneficial to human health. And what we did is we took those wild citrus plants over thousands of years, as they spread around the world, we selected and we selected and we selected, and we ended up with bigger, fleshier oranges, and we also ended up with sweeter ones. So we ended up with ones that were more palatable, but we all also removed that defense mechanism of the plant, and we end up you know, having huge monocultures of citrus that we spray with chemicals to substitute that defense mechanism. And we also see in those monocultures, as with the banana story, citrus greening disease spreading and, and devastating the orange industries in parts of the U.S., for example. So for me, it's the wonders of the biodiversity of the origins of our fruit, because we think most of the world's citrus comes from that one region. Secondly, the cultural appreciation of uh, the communities in that part of India for sourness and bitterness. And also it tells us a story of be careful what you wish for. So the sweeter and sweeter we took the orange, the more fragile again that cultivation, that production system became. And luckily, these communities still exist and interact and protect this wild resource. I mean, just going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, you are critical of the Green Revolution, not, of course, for its benefits in feeding so many people around the world, but 
for the failures of scientists to really appreciate the risks involved in making the world reliant on just a few basic crops in the way that they have. What do you hope that agricultural researchers might take away from your work? Mm. Well, I think Borlaug, Norman Borlaug, one of the chief architects of the Green Revolution and an incredibly skillful, talented crop breeder, realized this was only a short-term fix. He knew there was a limit on how long that system could sustain us and you know, also how the planet could, I guess, sustain that production system as well. And it's almost as if after that period, and Norman Borlaug was, received the Nobel Prize in 1970, a huge amount of complacency crept in because so much food was being produced. Yes, we did prevent famine, starvation in some parts of the world, but the clock was ticking and we didn't carry on with Borlaug's mission really of innovating and finding new ways in which we could produce food without the high costs of that temporary fix. We are beginning to understand the complex interactions between soil and crop varieties, between the food humans eat and their gut microbiomes. And in a sense, we are beginning to see that this far more simplistic, input-dependent way of producing food based around homogeneity is fighting against everything that we actually want and need, which is biodiversity and diversity of systems and food, greater resilience and being less dependent on these external inputs. So I think scientists now should come away from these stories and this history with greater awareness of the complexities of these systems and the complex interactions between them, between nature and agriculture, agriculture and human health. And finally, what efforts are scientists already making now to protect food biodiversity? Huge amounts. And I think this is the reason why I do feel optimistic in that there is growing recognition, acceptance of the need to change and create greater diversity in the food system and importantly, make it happen and invest in the research. For example, I was recently visiting crop scientists at a crop breeding center in the UK. And what they are doing is they are taking wheat back into its evolutionary history. So I was there standing in this greenhouse in which we were looking at wheat that might have existed 10,000 years ago. They were recreating the crosses that happened in nature to give us the wheats we have today. And in a sense, that is only happening because there is this greater recognition of the importance of diversity. One other example, next year, 2023, will be the year of millets. This is something that the Indian government lobbied the United Nations for, which is recognition and the appreciation and promotion of a crop important to India and other parts of Asia and Africa. Tiny, tiny seeds, sorghum is one example, and much more drought resilient, less dependent on irrigation, high levels of micronutrients, and were neglected partly because of this big push of the green revolution and new waves and new varieties of rice and wheat in India. And this global project unfolding next year in which more science, more collaboration, more education about this once very important crop that became neglected in the mid part of the 20th century. So I think just two examples of the fact that change is happening. Well, it's lovely to be able to end on a hopeful note there. Dan Saladino, thank you so much. You're very welcome. 
And that's it from me, Angela Saini. I do hope you've enjoyed this series and the journey that we've taken through the story of food and agriculture. And please remember that you can find every episode online on the Science website. But for now, from me, goodbye. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science site at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell. Special thanks to Angela Saini for all her amazing work on the book series this year. Jeffrey Cook composed the music on behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.